Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for today is from Psalm 104, verses 19 through 30. I'll be reading in Danish, and the English translation will be on the screen. Du skabte månen til at markere årets gang. Solen står op og går ned på den fastsatte tid. Du skabte nattens mørke, hvor de vilde dyr kommer frem. De unge løver brøler efter bytte, fanger de dyr, Gud har givet dem til føde. De trækker sig tilbage, når solen står op, går hjem til deres huler og lægger sig. Der begynder mennesket sin daglige dønt, bliver ved med at arbejde til dagen er forbi. Og Gud, hvor er din visdom stor, jorden er fuld af dine skæbninger, hvilken mangfoldighed du har skabt. Foran mig ligger det mægtige hav, der fremler af liv i alle former og farver. Skibene pløjer sig gennem de store have. Leviathan, som du skabte, boltrer sig i bølgerne. Hele skabningen er afhængig af dig. Du giver dem føde i rette tid. Du giver, og de tager imod. Når du åbner din hånd, bliver de med det. Men vender du ryggen til dem, bliver de skrækslagende. Tager du deres livsånd bort, dør de og bliver til støv. Din livgivende ånd har skabende kraft. Du fornyer alt liv på jorden. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gathering of saints. Thank you for the numerous occupations and vocations that they participate in each and every day and each and every week. And I pray now, Lord, that as we understand your purpose of work, the frustrations of work, um, and even how you continue to work and use our work to restore all things, Lord, that we would be encouraged that It would give meaning to the things that we do each and every week, and that it would also give us rest when work is frustrating or we're finding too much meaning in it, so that we would be able to rest in you and rest in your finished work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Does your main job, your main vocation, have anything to do with the purposes of God? Is your calling, your vocation, part of a wonderful life, or is it interfering with the true good religious work that we ought to be committing our life to? Now, if you've never heard me unpack these questions before, you may think that I am pretty biased. I'm a pastor, and I have given my life to serving in the church and serving a congregation, and that that is the main way that I seek to glorify God through my work, but I need to remind you that I did not emerge from the womb with Bible in hand quoting Greek. This isn't the only type of work I've had or any or, or only type of job that I've had. Uh, and I want to just remind you a little bit of like my even work history to highlight something. Um, because it wasn't until really the end of college that I had any sense of calling into a ministry like this. I was like many people trying to figure it out and from a very young age engaging in very different types of job and different types of work before ministry was even on my radar. My first job, uh, I grew up, I was born into a farming family. So as soon as I probably could scoop 
animal manure, I was out there working. I even recall being paid for it sometimes when I was able to help my grandfather at a very young age on the farm, and that would have been my first true job. It, my family made it very clear very early that this wasn't my thing. There was no thought that any family member had that I was going to inherit this occupation or inherit the family farm. They were pretty much tolerating my weak attempts at being a farmer. My first job off the farm while I was still in school and living at home was as a janitor at a, at a welding shop. I did that after school. I believe that was around junior high. And then I uh, transitioned out of that work when I got a job at the local grocery store, bagging groceries. And since I had a very young back back then, I would push in shopping carts most of the time in the dead of summer and a humid day. I got over that real quick and then decided to move into a sweet air conditioning situation in a athletic store where I, I sold shoes for the rest of high school. And I even carried this uh, little bit of a career into college uh, because while I was going through college, I always had some type of side hustle to earn some money, and so I worked at Famous Footwear in my first year of college. And I did so without a car, by the way. It was off campus, uh, like a mile or two away. It's the one up on Harmar, if you're familiar with the one in Roseville. Uh, so I also learned that I had the gift of asking for help and networking at that point because I had some real close friends in college right away. They all owned cars uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, after my first year at Famous Footwear, I decided that I wanted to do more on-campus work, and so I worked at a media center, which was responsible for making things like student IDs, and eventually I would become an RA, which was able to pay for at least a kind of free room and board while I was in the dorms there. And a uh, quick perk to that work uh, of being an RA is also where I ended up meeting my girlfriend, soon to be fiance, soon to be wife, because she was also an RA as well. So it was through that that the Lord's providence was very kind to me uh, through the work of being an RA. My first ministry-related work came in my last year of college where I ran for student government, and since I went to Northwestern, a Christian college, one of the positions on student government was ministry director, and that's basically an intern for the campus chaplain. And I was able to, uh, I was voted in. Uh, in fact, I got 100% of the vote because I was the only candidate. Um, but I was voted in uh, and was able to do that my, my last year. Uh, and it was one of, the, the, one of the many things that eventually would launch me into a life of ministry, but full-time ministry was still a long ways off for me. Uh, once I graduated college, I spent another month going back to the work of a janitor. I worked at a uh, commercial factory that made commercial shelving for places like Target and Walmart, and I worked there for a good month. Uh, in order to pay for a honeymoon. Uh, then we got married, we moved to seminary during the summer. While going to seminary, I worked landscaping on the campus grounds during the summer until my local church in Evanston, uh, Illinois, offered me a job to do part-time work uh, in college ministry and with Northwestern University students. And being a graduate from Northwestern, that was uh, quite a bit confusing. They're like, oh, you graduated from Northwestern. You must be really smart. I'm like, not this Northwestern. Uh, they, they saw I could get loans for tuition, and they brought me right in. Um, that's, that was the qualification. 
And so I did college ministry, and then after I graduated seminary, we stayed down there, and I came on the elder team of that local church as a volunteer, and then did a couple jobs in the marketplace, barista at Starbucks, and also I worked at a new restaurant in Chicago called Pinstripes. There's a Pinstripes, I believe, in uh, the Twin Cities now. It's like this like uh, fancy bistro where you can go play bocce and play uh, a couple games of bowling as well. And don't think like bowling, like some of these alleys, like you sit on gum and there's like stains on the couch and that sort of thing. This is like leather couch, walnut tables. I remember serving uh, the Chicago Bears. Uh, they would have like big uh, events at this place while I was a server there. And then when the Lord called me back uh, to start this church, I continued to work bivocationally. I kept my job at Starbucks, mainly because their benefits were great. There wasn't uh, good public health care at the time, and so I was able to uh, get health care through them, and uh, so I did 20 hours a week at Starbucks, and ended up working for Starbucks for five years, built up a coffee habit. I think I remember, I, I got, had this legendary drink at, the, at Starbucks that I developed over those years, where I think I put like six shots with a little bit of uh, steamed uh, breve and a little bit of white mocha into this cup just to wake me up from the dead in the morning because I usually do like a 5 a.m. shift. And I haven't had the drink since. I think, I like, I think I'm at, like nowadays it'd be like a $12 drink. Uh, so that's why I don't get it. But I uh, really enjoyed the time at Starbucks. Uh, I still drink uh, coffee to this day, but not Starbucks because they roast their beans way too much. Uh, they, and that's what they're, they're Charbucks, if you haven't ever heard that uh, reputation before. I like lighter roasted beans. Uh, so I rarely ever have Starbucks, but they're a great company to work for. It really wasn't until, the, I believe it was the summer of 2012 when I was called into full-time ministry and I have been doing this job ever since. Now, why am I telling you all this? Usually, if a pastor tells a story like this, or maybe you've been in a church situation where a story is told like this, that now what's going to be framed is, that's how I got called out of the secular marketplace into the sacred work of God. But I don't view it that way. I don't view that the, kind of the first half of my life was full of meaningless work. And I don't think what you are committed to in the marketplace and as parents at home, whatever vocation you have, is meaningless work either. I think it is a vital part of living a wonderful life and participating in God's restoration of all things. Because all work, every single job that I just listed, Every position, every task that I did, sacred and secular, it all mattered to God. Not only the things I was paid for, but also the things I volunteered for as well. And every task in the marketplace, as students, as parents, as volunteers, it all matters to God and it's part of his plan. Sunday matters, but so does everything you do from Monday to Friday. That matters. What many of you students and graduate students and returning students are spending all that tuition money on, it matters what it's preparing you for and what it is, is calling you to in the marketplace that all matters to God. And that's what I want to show in the message today. What you are doing throughout the week is part of our mission at Trinity City Church to join God in the renewal of all things. And I want to show that through Scripture by considering the design of work, the thorns of work, and the restoration of work. So let's go to the beginning. Let's go to creation. 
And in Genesis 1, we see God working. He's creating. He's accomplishing his task of creation. And after he has finished his work, he rests. But he doesn't rest for the reason that we often rest. We rest because we need more energy. We rest because we're tired. God never gets tired. He never loses energy because he is God. So the reason he rested is because he was finished. That's the other reason that we stop working. The project is done. It's time to move on and it's time to rest. So God rests at the end of creation because his creation is good and his, his purposes in creation uh, of getting it off the ground is done. Yet, it's interesting that God not only finishes the work in this sense uh, and nothing more needs to be done, there's still work to be done. But then in Genesis 1:28, he delegates it. God blessed humanity and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living thing that moves on the ground. This is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. We're told a couple things to do. One, fill the earth, and we talked about that in the restoration of relationships, how we are are created for community and for family and, and for friendships. And the other thing that he commands us to do is to subdue or have dominion over God's creation. In other words, we are stewards of his creation. He gives us the task to care for it, to manage it, to see that it is working according to his purposes, and so that it also flourishes for the benefit of other people. One significant part of understanding the storyline of God and how work is made is that work in this storyline is created before Genesis 3. Even though it may feel often that work is a burden, it's intended to be good, and work has, it, it is a good that God gives us. Even before the fall enters the world, there is work because work is good. In addition, everybody is asked to participate in this calling to work, to participate in having dominion and subduing creation. There is this one mandate, but work is incredibly diverse. The types of tasks, the types of callings that we have, we work with our hands and we work with our minds. We work in the field and we work in the office. We work as carpenters, farmers, parents, students, educators medical professionals, accountants, and ministers. All those tasks are equally valuable in participating in this one great calling, this mandate to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. All these jobs matter, and they impact other areas of work as well. All of our work is connected. The lumberjack cuts down the tree, a factory makes it into lumber, a carpenter creates a table, and a store sells it to us, where we use this tool as a place to unite and have fellowship as family and as a place of hospitality. And then this broad, big vision of Genesis 1 is narrowed down to the imagery of a garden in Genesis 2, where in 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And we also know from verse 18 that follows that man isn't able to do this work by himself. Both men and women are needed to keep the garden flourishing and the work of gardening uh, needs both participants. And this garden imagery matters. It's purposeful. 
Work, since it's pictured as gardening, it means that uh, as a gardener, you don't just let creation go, right? You, 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 you manage it and you, and, you, and, you, and you mold it for a purpose, but the way that you do it is also not this aggressive involvement and dominion over creation where you get to do whatever you want, where you get to tear down creation and put up a parking lot. That's also not uh, the purpose of gardening. In gardening, we are rearranging the material of our world to make it more fruitful and beneficial for everyone. We make it bear fruit and arrange it to fulfill a purpose. And so too, your job is the same way. No matter what your job is, you can picture it as being a gardener. You're using all the resources at your disposal to bring flourishing to not only your garden or your domain, but everybody that relies on your work, on you and the community of workers that surround uh, yourself with. That's why the story of scripture starts in a garden. But why are we doing all this work? It's because the garden is purposed to become a city, a city where everybody flourishes because of what we are folding and molding creation into. We see this because you ever uh, taken over a garden that's been neglected? And you can even think about that with your job, but I literally think of this because as many of you know, we moved about a year ago um, and this spring, after uh, the snow melted, I had a massive task uh, with my family uh, of managing this new landscape because the little bit of the history of my house is the, um, it was some empty nesters that were there. Uh, we were only the fourth family to take over this house. And uh, my understanding is the, the wife of this household, she was the gardener, but she passed away five years before he did from uh, cancer. And then he wasn't really into it, so he just let the garden go. And you could tell at some point this place would have been pristine. There was, there was gardens for food, there was landscaping beds. It would have been amazing, but it looked like when we took it over how you would expect the landscaping to look after five years of neglect. And so, again, that's what happens. Like, the purpose of, of this, again, is not, and, and like any type of work, it's not to let creation take over, right? I go into this situation because creation did kind of take over, it was neglected, but my purpose in this, and that's one of the, one of the unique things about, about work, is I've come to my yard, and maybe you've done this too, and you're like, what do I want to accomplish? Like, how, what is, the, what is gonna be the purpose of like this little chunk of land in St. Paul. And for us in our block, we wanted to use our yard for the purposes of all the neighborhood kids having another place to play in. And so having a bunch of flower beds and landscaping rocks isn't really conducive to that. So we went all the way back to ripping out all these things and then just putting down grass because the purpose of of this, this chunk of land is going to be so that the neighborhood kids have another place to run around in and play. And that is the nature of our work. All of our work is like gardening. And your vocation is your garden. Vocation is a Latin word that means calling. Your calling is to steward or tend the garden of your daily life. That is your purpose. Dorothy Sayers, a popular author, once wrote, quote, work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is or should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction. 
You live to work, and work is the primary way each and every week that you love your neighbor as yourself. But we all know that this ideal picture of work is not what we experience in the day-to-day. Work is also an incredibly frustrating activity. And why is that? We go to the thorns of work in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 16 through 19, we are introduced with the reality because of sin, our relationship with God is now broken. Our relationship with one another and every human relationship is now frustrated. And then when we get to Genesis 3.17, it says, God is speaking to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's a bad thing to happen when your job is a gardener. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, many of you hear that in light of maybe your weekly job, and it sounds like, yeah, that's more like it. Work and die, and it stinks, right? It is tough, tough work, right? Uh, and even as I, as I think about uh, the, even the imagery that I gave of uh, landscaping this yard and getting it back to its, uh, the, the way that we were going to purpose that, that yard, even right now as I see this new grass popping up, creeping Charlie as well, creeping in uh, to this garden as well, it's frustrating it. That's what, that's what the thorns and thistles and weeds do. It frustrates the work of a gardener. It makes it more difficult. And that is happening in every one of your careers as well. If you work with computers, you have the virus, uh, a computer virus that functions as thorns. If you work in athletics, you have injuries. Economies go into recessions. If you're a parent, kids endlessly make giant messes that need to be cleaned. Those are your weeds in your garden. Our coworkers or our supervisor not only can add incredible meaning to our work, but also can be the most frustrating aspects of it. One week you may feel accomplished and excited to start your weekly job, and the next week you dread it and are willing to do anything else but this job. Our approach to work is often shot through with sin. We find too much meaning and justification in our work. We can idolize work. Sometimes our ambition turns into greed or our times of rest into laziness. These are all the ways that work is frustrated and shot through with sin. On this last example, one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 26:15, A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. That's one of the things, the work of just feeding yourself, right? Ah, it's just a little bit too much to ask. We're on the other side, and not even on the other side, we're crawling out day by day of the reality of this pandemic, and that has shown some of the thorns and thistles of work. It increased unemployment, it disrupted the workplace, it stressed out students and parents. Many industries still needed, through the worst of each pandemic wave, to work in person because grocery stores needed to be stocked and sick bodies needed to be cared for. It has been a frustrating season in all of our tasks and vocations. 
But like a lot of things and a lot of seasons of suffering, there's some hidden blessings that are starting to emerge from this season and this pandemic life as well. Many uh, employers and even families have rediscovered a healthy work and life balance because of more time at home and less time commuting. We found out that some meetings can really indeed be turned into emails and text messages and not a two-hour meeting where things are not being accomplished. I think at this stage, we need to be at the point, and I hope you're at the point, that you shouldn't take for granted how connected every job is to one another. For example, we learned that even schools are, are relying on bus drivers, for example, because one helps and serves the other. There is not one job that is meaningless, but it all contributes to the greater good. I was uh, watching this video, I think it was through the Wall Street Journal, that was uh, explaining this reality that most of us, if you wait too long this Christmas, will not be able to buy presents this year. I think one headline says that you know Christmas should be canceled. It's just like, ah, I think the, the greatest gift is still there, not to get all pastoral on you, but I think we're going to be fine to celebrate Christmas if the supplies chain is broken. But I was curious to think, though, like, why is it broken? Like, I'm very curious. I went to this uh, YouTube channel of the Wall Street Journal. They had something on there. And it has nothing to do with like the products are there and they're being shipped into American yards, but there are these stacks of goods that are just waiting there to be shipped to stores. And so the reason why the supply is being cut off right now is demand has gone up because consumers are starting to buy more and manufacturers have turned that up and they're getting the goods to our shores. But the issue is if those two dynamics uh, trucking agencies that are uh, tasked with the job of bringing it from the shores into the places where they need to be distributed for manufacturing, there aren't enough truckers to do that, which again shows of how connected our work is and how valuable every single type of job is. It's not meaningless. And I hope that at this stage in the pandemic, we especially as gospel people would not take for granted any type of work or task or vocation. And one of the reasons why this is true, why we can go through such a hard season and such a hard impact on our weekly rhythms and our economic well-being, but God is still doing something, is because God is still working. He's still restoring all things, and we know from the Bible that it's often through seasons of suffering that renewal emerges and new life emerges, and we have that confidence because God is still at work. That's what the scripture reading this morning was getting at, Psalm 104. God made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they steal, uh, and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening, and then skipping down to verse 30. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. God is continuing to work, and he's providing for his creation, which is what that imagery of the, 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 the lion and the prey is getting at, that God is continuing to provide for his creation. And you see that verse that he continues to use those who are made in his image to go out, get up, 
and work until it's time to rest. Because God's spirit not only creates but renews, and the Lord is using our work as an instrument of his renewal. Promised you a quote for Reformation Sunday from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He had this to say about our task of joining God in work. All our work in the field, in the garden, in the city, in the home, in the struggle, in the government, to what does it all amount before God except child's play? By means of which God is pleased to give his gifts in the field, at home, and everywhere. These are the masks of our Lord God, behind which he wants to be hidden and to do all things. This is what Luther is saying. God is working, but he's calling us to participate in his task of restoring all creation, and he's still committed to seeing that this garden is made into a glorious city. And what he is saying, Luther is saying, is that God has the ability to do this by himself, but he allows us to participate in that work. How does God care for bodies? It's through doctors and nurses and medical professionals. How does God provide for anything? It's through human means so that we are participants in his work. I think we see this a little bit in the life of parenting. Most of what you can do in the home is probably done better and the kitchen, for example, will be much cleaner if your kids don't help you cook something, right? But then you sometimes get this guilt as a parent that, oh, like, I'd rather do this myself because I don't want this just to be a hot mess, but my kids want to help me, you know, bake cookies or whatever it is. But you know as a parent that one of the joys of parenting, one of your responsibilities as a parent is to allow your kids to participate in the tasks of this household, even though you know you can do a better job of it yourself. And in there, that's a, a kind of a small glimpse of what's happening in God's divine activity, is that he is allowing us to participate, even though we make a mess of things, even though he can do it better, he has the joy of a parent, of a father, to allow us to come into his garden so that the work that it needs to be done is something that we are contributing to as well. And one of the beautiful things with the death and resurrection of Jesus and all the implications of the gospel is that work is restored because it's also put into its proper place. And it's put into its proper place in a couple different ways. One, if we are not saved uh, through religious works, then that also means that any type of work isn't contributing to our justification before God. We stand righteous and accepted before God because of his unconditional grace, because of the work of Jesus Christ, and not because our salvation is based on any sort of performance review. God is pleased with us through faith in Christ and Christ alone, which means that you are free to do any type of work, religious work, marketplace work, household work, without this threat or this pressure that I have to do this in certain ways so that God will be pleased with me, so that I have to find some sort of justification in my work. No, God is pleased with you because of Christ, so you are free as his child to participate in your job and your work in the way that he's called you to do, and it's okay if you don't do it perfectly. It's okay if you mess up. Humans might get upset with you, but your Lord in heaven does not. 
And the other thing that the gospel helps us with in terms of our work is that it warns us and shows us why we shouldn't make work our idol, that work is never ultimate, is not the ultimate purpose of our life. It's a great and important purpose that dominates a lot of our weeks and what we do, but it is not our ultimate purpose. It's not our highest good. To go back to the first sermon of this series, our highest good, our ultimate satisfaction is God and God alone. And when you put God in the center of your life, then work is properly ordered so that it doesn't become a destructive idol in your life. Because when it becomes an idol in your life, then, for example, if your work goes well, you can get prideful and have a tendency to cut others down that are getting in your way for your career advancement. But when God is your highest good, you see work and any flourishing you have as a gift from him and not something that you find your ultimate meaning in. Or on the other hand, work could go poorly. And if work is ordered to be an idol, you can become severely depressed if work is not going well. But we are giving grace in the gospel as a people We're not punished for our faults. And so for that, our meaning and our identity is found in God and God alone. Even when things are not going well, he is still pleased with us. He still loves us. And this gospel-shaped balance, dependent on the grace of God, is what motivates us to work for God and his glory. I want to conclude, though, with another important aspect of this theology of work. We are called to work, and work dominates our life. But the scripture gives us this framework. Work six days and do what on the seventh? Rest. Our life is structured biblically around rhythms of work and leisure. And we rest as a people of God because it's an act of worship. It declares to us in the world what Jesus taught in John 5, 17, when he says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. He was pushing back on why he was able to work on the Sabbath. Well, because this is God in the flesh, and he has work to do, meaning that it's not dependent on you. You are still called to rest. God's work in your vocation continues even when you are resting. You are called to rest as a way to declare that this job isn't ultimately dependent on me, but it's dependent on the Lord alone. I am merely a participant in this job. That's what you declare when you rest from your work. And also, when you rest from your work, it's a way of saying that God is still working to bring about salvation, restoration, and renewal. We rest when we rest from work, not only from our work, but we rest in his grace and we rest in God's kindness. We remember that the Lord and not our work is our highest good when we rest. And Christ's work is our justification in anything we do. That's what we are declaring in our moments of rest. And that's the rest that we are entering into in Christ. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11 says, there remains then a Sabbath rest, For the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest, also rests from their work, just as God did from his. 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their examples of disobedience. We enter this rest now because of the gospel, yet there's a day where this project of restoration will be done. We participate in it, and God will wrap it up, and we will be raised from the dead, and we will walk on this holy space, this new city, this new Jerusalem, where there will be no more thorns or thistles, death or frustration anymore, but it's an eternal rest from the task that God has wrapped up through his people. We get to enjoy one day God's complete restoration of all things. In the meantime, we work and we rest and we worship, confident that God will achieve this purpose.